0: Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tulkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshachinu, Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrahamim, Father of Mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. We thank you, Lord, for being a gracious and loving God, for being a God who is given us way more than we deserve, who has redeemed us from the darkness that we have placed ourselves in and who has restored us as sons and daughters of the King Most High. Father, I thank you for the loving gift of your salvation, for your mercy, and for your renewal that is day in and day out refreshing us in your presence. Lord, I pray that you speak through me this morning as we dig into this Parsha. I pray that you open up our hearts and our minds to understand your word and what you were doing in our midst and Father, I pray that nothing of me be involved except that which you have ordained for this purpose. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, "Amen." This week we are in Parsha Pinchas, which comes from Numbers 25, 10 through 30, verse 11, uh, and uh, is a really interesting Parsha. If you take the time to sit down and to read through it and to see what the Lord is doing in this Parsha, what he has uh, what he's speaking through it. Uh, first and foremost, we see a, towards the end of the Parsha, a reiteration of the uh the, Mo'adim, the appointed days, the feasts and festivals of Adonai. Um, today, I want to focus specifically on Pinchas, on Phineas, as it's often translated in the English. Uh, it says in this week's parsha, Pichas ben Eleazar ben Aharon Hakohen, uh, Phineas uh, in English, Phineas the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the Cohen, the High Priest. Um, and uh, as we look at this, what we realize is that there's so much value, so much messianic foreshadowing. There's so much in this parsha that directs us specifically to Yeshua. That I think it is of great value. That we invest the time into understanding what's going on and hearing from the Lord in it, it sets up actually, and it's kind of like Parsha Chayisera. Uh, Chayisera begins with, and this is the life of Sarah, and she died. Uh, it's my summation of it, but that's how it begins. The first verse or two is, this is the life of Sarah, she dies, and it goes on with Isaac. And that verse or two is all you read about in Sarah in that Parsha. Um, in Parsha Pinchas, it's just the very beginning. That we read about Pinchas, about Phineas. It's actually the end of last week's Parsha that we see where Pinchas, where Phineas comes into the picture, and in particular what he did. So if you go back to last week's Parsha, in Numbers chapter 25 beginning with verse 1. Remember we were dealing with Bilam or Balaam and Balak trying to curse Israel and the Lord would not let a curse come forth. Instead blessing came forth from Bilam's mouth every time he opened it up. Uh, Blessing specifically from Adonai himself over uh, Amislael, the people of Israel. Verse 25 says, while Israel was staying in Shittim, the people began to have immoral sexual relations with women from Moab. Then they invited the people to, sacrifice of, their gods, uh, to the sacrifice of their gods. So the people were eating and bowing down before their gods. When Israel became bound to Baal Peor, the anger of Adonai grew hot against Israel. Adonai said to Moses, seize all the ringleaders and hang them before, any, before Adonai facing the sun so that Adonai's fierce anger may be turned away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you, uh, kill your men who have been joining themselves about. Baal Peor. Then behold, a man from Bnei Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his brothers before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Bnei Israel. While they were uh, weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting, in other words, while the people were mourning over the plague of Adonai, they, he brings this woman in right in front of everybody. He doesn't try to hide it. He does it right in front of everybody. When Phinehas, or Pichas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the Kohen saw it, he arose from the midst of the assembly, uh, took a spear in his hand, and went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced them through, both the Israelite man and the woman's belly. Then the plague uh, uh, among Bnei Israel was stopped. However, 24,000 were dead because of the plague. Um, I'm not going to go into drastic detail of the position of which allowed the spear to go through both at once, but you can figure it out. Um, he walked into the tent at a very precarious time, um and uh, and and he stabbed the spear through them because, This is the son, the grandson of Aaron, Pechaz is the grandson of Aaron. He has this zeal for the Lord. He is in the priesthood lineage. He has a zeal for the Lord, and he sees what's going on right in front of them, right in the midst of what the Lord is doing in, for lack of a better way of wording it, in punishing Israel with this plague that causes 24,000 people to die. Uh, He sees that as all of this is going on, as all these atrocities are occurring, Here's this guy with the gall, with the chutzpah, as we'd say in Yiddish, the, the guts, to still bring this woman in front of the nation. And he, it's not like he tries to hide it. He parades her in front of everybody, brings her into the tent, and, uh, and begins to, uh, to do things that, you know, get him speared. Um, and, and as all of this is going on, Pinhas gets upset. He races in with his spear into the tent, And he jams a spear through both of them and kills them. And instantly, upon his action, instantly the plague ends. 24,000 of Israel are dead. The very next thing we read right after this first little section of this week's Parsha is about the counting again, or the second census of Israel in the wilderness. Why are they taking the second census? Because they have now wrapped up basically the 40 years they were supposed to spend in the wilderness. All of the first generation, thanks to this 24,000 people dying, all of the first generation that left, Israel or left Egypt are now dead. And Israel's getting ready to go into the Promised Land. Uh, Towards the end of this Parsha, or maybe it's next week's Parsha, I forget exactly off the top of my head, we read about Moses getting the forewarning, hey, you're going to climb this mountain, look at the land, and you're going to croak right there, and that'll be it. And Joshua will take Israel in during this Parsha, because the next thing we read about is Joshua getting uh, the smichah, or the laying out of hands and the ordination as the next leader of Israel. So in verse verse, uh, 10 of chapter 25, this is the beginning of this week's Parsha, Parsha Pinchas, says, Then Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the Cohen, has turned my anger from Bnei Israel, because he was very zealous for me among them, so that I, be, I did not put an end to Bnei Israel in my zeal. So now say, See, I'm making with him a covenant of shalom, a covenant of peace. It will be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and atoned for Bnei Israel. In Hebrew, the word or the root word of zealous or zeal is kana. It's the same root word that we get the word jealousy from in Hebrew. Uh, So zeal and jealousy are closely related. The difference is zeal is righteous or should be righteous and jealousy is unrighteous, right? So we're not jealous for the Lord. He is jealous for us in his righteousness and his desire as our husband. Uh, when we are jealous, it is unrighteous because we are jealous against what the Lord is doing or of what other people have. Israel, in this case, was jealous of the, uh, the Midianites and the Moabites and their gods, and so they began to worship the gods of the Midianites and the Moabites as opposed to having zeal for the God of Israel. And here is Phinehas, or Pinchas, who has a solid zeal for the Lord and rushes in. As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew, the word used several times in this parsha is kinati, or my zeal. And it's used once here in verse, uh, um, uh, where are we at? In verse... 11, towards the end, it says, so, so that I did not put an end, or, I'm sorry, the beginning of it, my anger from Bnei Israel, he turned my anger away from Bnei Israel, because he was very zealous for me among them, so that I did not put a, uh, an end to Bnei Israel in my zeal, so the word there in Hebrew is cannot see, which is my zeal, but then when we get to the end of the parsha, and he says, uh, or the end of the section, it says, because he was zealous for his God and atoned for B'nai Israel." The word again there is kenatia, is that idea of my zeal. He had my zeal, the Lord's zeal, was upon, uh, upon Phinehas, upon Pinchas. This was not just him going and killing somebody because what they were doing was wrong. He was going and stopping the nation of Israel from continuing to fall down this path of offering their lives in worship before the Baalim, or in particular, before Baal Peor. Um, If you know, if you pay attention to Acts 15, uh, one of the four things when the disciples are trying to figure out how to handle Gentiles and what Gentiles should do in the body of Messiah as believers and whether they should honor Torah or not, and so on and so forth, they said we need to start with four issues, and those four issues are do not eat blood, do not eat foods that were strangled to death, do not eat uh, uh, foods offered to idols, and do not commit fornication. Right. Those are the four things that the disciples said, we've got to start here. We'll figure out everything else later. We've got to start here. Why do they start there? They start there because... These are people, these Gentiles of the first century, people coming out of paganism into a new form of worship. And in paganism, sleeping with temple prostitutes, much like what we see in Parsha is very much a part of their worship. And we see it, it says that that Midian brought these women, the women of Moab, in front of Israel, and they began to lay with them and worship before their gods. They were having sex with these women to worship the Baal Peor, to worship the Baalim, the gods of the nations around them, rather than serving with full-heartedness the Lord of Israel. Much like the sin of the golden calf, in which they had a huge orgy around the golden calf. They were worshiping this idol like all of the nations worship their idols. And there was this realization, uh, and is a realization, of the connectivity between uh, uh, sexuality outside of a healthy biblical relationship and the rest of the world's mentality of uh, paganism and, and turning our hearts away from the Lord. And if we look at sex and the way it's handled today, very often it is handled as though it itself is an idol. Um, and that's very problematic, and we end up causing all kinds of problems, and there's all kinds of messed up people in this world because of it, and so what we see here, as we're looking at this parsha, is that Pinchas stops this plague that's about to slaughter the nation of Israel, and had he not stopped it, it would have just kept going till somebody did, um, and it took the righteous actions of a man with a zeal and a hunger for the Lord to stop it, and immediately upon this plague stopping, God commands a census of Israel, and the census is to figure out how many are left, and in particular that all of the first generation are gone. It says in verse 12, so now say, see, I am making with him a covenant of shalom. It will be for him and his descendants after him, a covenant of everlasting priesthood. Uh, Phineas, Pinchas, the tradition tells us that he was actually born before the covenant, the Aaronic covenant of the priesthood was made. So although he is in the lineage of Aaron, he is not, at this point, tradition says he was not actually part of the priesthood covenant of Aaron because he was born after the covenant, uh, I'm sorry, before the covenant was made, and he wasn't born of the firstborn of Aaron, so he couldn't have been the high priest. Uh, And so this is an action, they say, this is an action that actually connects him into the priesthood uh, by covenant, just like those that were priests, are set up for priests before him. But aside from that, what we also know is that Eliezer, his father, marries the uh, daughter of uh, uh, Yitro, of Jethro. So he marries a woman who is not of Israel. So he is the son of an Israelite, or in particular, a priest of Israel. And a bride of the nations or a person of the nations. So because he is not uh, purely a uh, Aaronic descendant, uh, it ends up putting him in a position where he wasn't necessarily considered by Israel as being a priest. And so here in this passage, what we see is the Lord takes somebody that Israel may not have considered as a priest and says, not only are you a priest, but now the covenant of the priesthood will flow specifically through your descendancy. Still in an Aaronic order, he is a descendant of Aaron, but instead of it going through any other Aaronic order lineage, it goes specifically through Pinchas, through Phineas' lineage, and it's a covenant of an everlasting priesthood, of an eternal priesthood one that will never end. And then we look back just a little bit before that. He says, I'm making a covenant of shalom, a covenant of peace with you. And it's really interesting that when the uh, the, the, uh, the the scribes that write the Torah scrolls are writing the scrolls, they're very particular. There are specific uh, regulations, if you would. There are specific regulations that determine uh, exactly how neat and orderly and, and, and intentional. Each letter has to be written. If a letter is written wrong, that section has to be taken out, a fresh section put in, and everything that was on that section has to be rewritten again. There is very intentional direction that's put tor- towards it. But there's also one unique place in the entire Torah where there is a letter that is intentionally left broken. In other words, they start writing this letter, they get a part of it written, there's a space between it, and they finish the letter after the space. It is intentionally broken. And that letter is in this parsha. That letter is the letter Vav. And that letter is in the middle of the word Shalom, right here where it says, I am making a covenant of Shalom, a covenant of peace with Pinchas. And tradition tells us that the reason that is there is because it points specifically to Messiah. See, the letter Vav is the the letter representative of man. And so in order for us to be redeemed by Mashiach, Mashiach would have to be broken for us. And so the Torah scroll, as it's been written for generations upon generations upon generations, leaves this random little sign of Messiah in the word Shalom. He is our Prince of Peace and the word shalom, and this parsha, speaking of the everlasting covenant of the priesthood with Pinchas, a man that the rest of the nation would have never considered a priest, here is this broken vav pointing to our Messiah, who would be our prince of peace, our, our Sar Shalom, who would be our king uh, eternal, who would be our high priest in the heavenly tabernacle for all eternity here is this image, this sign of this connectivity to him in the story of Pinchas. As a matter of fact, uh, reading from uh, an excerpt that I got from something uh, the other day, it says, on a sod level, which is the basis level, we can further think of, uh, I'm sorry, it's the, the second level of Jewish interpretation. It says, we can further uh, think of the, the broken vav as a picture of the brokenness of Messiah for an ultimate deliverance. How so? Well, since Vav represents the number of man, the broken Vav represents a man that is broken. In this particular pasuch or verse, the, name, the man has been broken for the sake of a covenant of peace that brought atonement to Israel, a clear picture of Yeshua, the Mashiach, and his ultimate deliverance for us. Note further that the broken word shalom could also be read as sh- uh, salim, meaning complete, Uh, indicating that the covenant is one of completion, uh, finality, and perfection. And so as we look at this, uh, we see in the Hebrew, and it's really interesting when you go back to the Hebrew, you start to see things that you don't necessarily see in the English that cannot be carried over. That O would in Shalom would look a little weird if it was broken. Um, But that Vav is something that really pops and it stands out in the Hebrew. So what we see here is that Phinehas, one man, ends up bringing about the salvation, if you would, of the nation of Israel, which was being ended, it was being destroyed, it was being condemned because of the actions of a lot of the people in the nation, but in particular, this one man uh, in the nation of Israel, this one man, Zimri, who was sinning not only before the eyes of the Lord, but before the eyes of everyone. Uh, And so this one man brought sin into the camp, if you would, whereas this one man comes in and brings redemption, restoration, and salvation to the nation of Israel, to the camp of Israel. Uh, As we look through this Parsha, we see all sorts of of things that come about, but in particular, uh, and I'm going to talk more about it, I think, next week, but in particular, looking ahead into next week's Parsha. We see that the foundation of this whole problem with the Moabite women and the Midianites is actually Balaam, who the Lord wouldn't let curse Israel, but instead he spoke blessing over Israel. But when Bilam realized he couldn't get away with what he was hoping to do and what Balak was hoping he would do, Bilam went back around, and in Numbers chapter thirty-one, uh, I'm sorry, thirty, yeah, chapter thirty-one, verse thirteen through sixteen, we actually see, and you can go back and look at it on your own, we actually see the connection to how Bilam got into this picture. Bilam actually went to Balak and said, "Look, we couldn't curse them. The Lord wouldn't let me do that. But I got a way that we can fix this. They're really weak in terms of sexuality. They are really weak in terms of wanting to be like the nations around them. They're really weak in terms of not." wanting to be set apart righteous and holy before their lord so if you send a bunch of of, uh temple prostitutes uh pagan temple prostitutes into the camps of israel they will surely fall this is how you can get on them this is how you can fix this problem this is how you can end up killing them you don't even have to do anything the lord will take care of it for you so send the men. And so he ends up, the the Midianites send the Moabite women in, and they uh, end up uh, causing 24,000 men of Israel to die. Now, ultimately, what the enemy meant for evil, the Lord turns into good, right? Well, this was the last 24,000 that had to die. Not that death is a good thing, but it was the last 24,000 of Israel of the first generation that had to die so that the next generation could enter into the promised land. And everything that we see from here is Israel preparing finally to go into the promised land? So we have just a couple of chapters left of the book of Numbers, which is uh, this final setup of where they are and what's going on, and Moses getting instruction that he's going to die uh, on the mountain, and, and raising uh, Joshua up as the next generation of leadership of Israel, and the transition to the priesthood, and everything that's going on there, because now Aaron is going to be dead, and the, or uh, Aaron's already dead, and the, uh, the Eleazar is going to die, and there needs to be a continuation of the priesthood. So we just see this new Generation rising, this generation that were not plagued with the sensitivity to falling prey to the world around them, they have a zeal for the Lord, right? Joshua and Caleb come back from spying out the land and said, Look, forget what these idiots over here are saying. Let's go take the land. We've got this. The Lord has given it to us. Let's just mount up and go, and this is ours. The Lord has already provided a way he had zeal for the Lord. Pinchas ends up becoming the high priest of an, his lineage is an eternal priesthood. Why does he become a high priest? Because he ends up being a guy that is standing up for the Lord saying, no matter what, I am going to protect the Lord's image. I am going to stand for the Lord. And he brings about a restoration of the nation of Israel. And so we see all of this going on and, uh, and pointing us, I believe, and specifically directly to Yeshua as our Messiah. We know that, uh, as we read in our Brich Adashah Parsha this morning, in our Torah service, uh, and if you go to John 11, we read it from a, a little bit of a different perspective. You go to John 11, beginning with chapter uh, verse 45. It says, therefore, many of the Judeans who had come to Miriam uh, and had seen what Yeshua had done put their trust in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Yeshua had done. So the ruling Kohanim and Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we doing? They ask, this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our holy place and our nation. Verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was the Gahongadol, the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing. You don't take into account that it is better for you that one man die for the people rather than for the whole nation to be destroyed. Now Caiaphas I believe is speaking prophecy about Mashiach as the salvation for all mankind. I don't know whether Caiaphas knew what he was speaking to the degree of which it is actually intended from the Lord. But I believe Caiaphas is speaking prophecy here about our days. And the days of all of those that have lived and breathed and accepted Messiah's salvation since Yeshua uh, was resurrected and ascended into heaven. And so as we see all of this going on, what we see is that there's this notion from the high priest of Israel in the first century during the days of Yeshua, right up to Yeshua's death, that... It would be better for one man to die on behalf of the nation than the whole nation die. And this is exactly what we see happening in, in uh, last week's Parsha and the beginning of this week's Parsha. Pinchas kills Zimri, a person of Israel, and it, the, in, the one man dies and it saves the entire nation, Right? Because of this one man's sin, the nation was in uh, dire distress. It was because of a lot of sins. But in this case, we're looking at this one man. Because of this one man's sin, the entire nation was in a lot of distress. Yet here comes one man, Pinchas, who destroys him, who kills him. And the death of that one man brings about salvation for the whole nation rather than the whole nation being destroyed because of it. Imagine had nobody done anything to Zimri. What would have happened? Because he was doing this intentionally before the Lord, before Israel, before everyone. He wanted everyone to see how despicable he was going to act. What do you think the Lord would have done? Do you think it would have just been a passive situation? No, the Lord would have taken action even more than he already had. And so what we see in John 11 is this connection to Yeshua as a Pinchas type of Messiah. Pinchas being a foreshadowing of Yeshua, bringing about this very specific salvation for Israel. Verse 12 of Romans chapter 5 says, So then just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and the same way death spread to all men because all sinned. For up until the Torah, sin was in the world, but sin does not count as sin when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had uh, not sinned in a manner similar to the violation of Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come, who's a pattern of Messiah. But the gracious gift is not like the transgression, for if many died because of the transgression of one man. How much more did the grace of God overflow to many through the gift of one man, Yeshua the Messiah? Moreover, the gift is not like what happened through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment for, from one violation resulted in condemnation, but on the other hand, the gracious gift following many transgressions resulted in justification. For if by the one man's transgression death reigned from the one, how much more shall those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign and the life uh, in, uh, through the life, the one, through light I can't read. Reign in life through the one, Messiah Yeshua. So then, through the transgression of one, condemnation came to all. Likewise, through the righteousness of one came righteousness of life to all men. For just as though the disobedience of one man, many was made, were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, many will be set right forever. So we see this connection of Adam being the the first man and he introduces sin into the world and the entire world is condemned to death because of Adam's sin and the sin that continues to perpetrate through us over and over and over and over and over again. We are condemned to eternal death because of our sin, but just as sin entered and condemnation entered the world because of one man, There is salvation for the entire world that has now entered because of one man, the second Adam, Mashiach Yeshua, who came into this world and lived an obedient and righteous life and offered his life through the zeal for his Lord, offered his life as a living sacrifice for us, that we may be redeemed of the condition of sin, that we may be redeemed of the condemnation of sin, that we may be redeemed from what is rightfully due us, we deserve a spear through our gut just as much as Simri did, right? But Messiah has redeemed us, has provided salvation that you and I could stand before the Lord and see, he will see nothing on the slate in front of him of sins that were in our lives because of the blood atonement of Messiah Yeshua and our acceptance of his atonement. We deserve so much more than what Israel was dealt with, the 24,000 that died because of this sin. Yet here we stand, redeemed because of Messiah, just like Israel stood ready to cross into the Jordan because of the actions of Pinchas and his zeal for the Lord. A lot of times we get burdened down with the idea that, oh, my sin's so bad, or the thing that I did is so horrible, nobody would want me, not even God. God wouldn't want me. But the reality is, is Yeshua laid his life down on the the line so that you and I could be redeemed no matter how bad the mistakes we have made are, no matter how ridiculous and how disgusting and how despicable our sins are, no matter how marred our lives are no matter how much people have hurt us, broken us, destroyed us, no matter how many times we've opened up a door or a window in our lives for the enemy to get in and to toy around with us and to mess with us and to ruin us, no matter how many times we put ourselves in a position to be bound to the enemy, to be bound to sin, to be bound to curses of this world, Messiah offered his life so that you and I, no matter how ridiculous we were in the past, could be redeemed here in the present, now and forevermore. See, Messiah, Hebrews tells us, Messiah Yeshua became our high priest, that there was a covenant of priesthood with him that is an everlasting covenant. It doesn't undo the priesthood of of Pinchas, which is an everlasting covenant of priesthood. It doesn't undo that, but Messiah's is a better priesthood. Pinchas could only offer sacrifices and atonement for here and now. He could never offer something that was going to be permanent and eternal. Neither could Aaron or Eleazar, or any of the other priests, the high priests that have existed during the days of the tabernacle and the temples, none of them could ever offer a sacrifice that would truly redeem us and restore us and atone for us and provide eternal life for us. But our high priest, Yeshua HaMashiach, the priest that is in, he's in a better, a greater uh, uh, priesthood order than that of Aaron. He's in an order that offers, or the order that offers, sacrifice and atonement on the altar in heaven. His the blood of Messiah, the Lamb that was slain for our sins, is poured out on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies so that we could have eternal life. Through the actions of one man, the entire world is able to be restored to the God that created us all, to the God whose very breath is within our lungs, to the God who desires nothing more than to have a relationship with us, one-on-one, daily communing with us, daily feeding us, daily lifting us up, daily leading our steps, and daily using us for the good and glory of his kingdom before all men. Unfortunately, we continue to grapple with our sins and we deal with uh, continual repetitive sins or we deal with generational curses or we deal with things that we just refuse to let go or we carry the burden of our sins or our mistakes on our own shoulders as opposed to sharing them with our community around us that we don't carry the load ourselves we try to hold it in this is why it's, we're, we're, we're commanded by the Lord to uh, uh, confess our sins one to another. Not because we need somebody else's forgiveness to be forgiven. We have Messiah's forgiveness. But because every time we hold something in secret, even though we know we've been redeemed and restored, every time we hold on to something in secret, the enemy now has one more tool in his tool chest to use against us. And although the Lord has forgiven us and doesn't see that sin anymore, the enemy going to go, oh, but, but you know, I remember, David, when you did this. Or I remember when you, the Lord couldn't really love you. Don't you remember what you did last week? How could the Lord love you? Don't you remember what you were like when you were a teenager? How could the Lord love that? That's just a mess. And we go, maybe he's right. How could the Lord love me? How could the Lord want me? How could the Lord use me? But Messiah gave his life once for all that we could be freed that we could find freedom, that the chains could be broken, the strongholds could be torn down, and our sins could be forgiven so that we could have eternal life in His midst, so that we could be brought into the eternal covenant of the priesthood of Messiah Yeshua. Just as sin entered the world through one man, just as sin was destroying the community of Israel through one man, just as one man in the person of Pinchas and the zeal that he had for the Lord brought about redemption and salvation for the nation of israel the actions of one man messiah yeshua brought about redemption salvation atonement and freedom for all who may call upon his name we act like salvation is a complicated process life after salvation can be complicated but salvation itself is easy accepting god's forgiveness is easy forgiving ourselves is harder Forgiving others is even harder. But sometimes we get hung up on just accepting God's forgiveness. Because we think that's the hard thing. How could God possibly love me? How could God possibly use me? How could God possibly want me? And along with that, because we then take our perceptions of our relationship with the Lord, and we relate them to our world around us, we go, how could anybody else love me? How could anybody else want me? If these people really knew what I used to be like, nobody would want me around. If these people really knew what the old nature was, what the old man was, they wouldn't want the new man. And we forget the fact that as much as we needed God's salvation, as much as we needed God's redemption, as much as we needed God's restoration, so did everybody else in this room. So did everybody else in every believing congregation in the world. We're no different than anyone else. We may be arrogant and prideful enough to think that we're worse, but we're no different than everyone else. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of the Lord and everyone has opportunity for restoration to the glory of the Lord through the salvation of Messiah Yeshua. So I want to encourage you right now. If you have yet to fully give your life over to the Lord, if you have yet to entirely and wholly walk in a righteous and holy zeal, a zeal of Joshua and Caleb, the zeal of Pinchas, the zeal of Elijah, the zeal of Elisha, the zeal of Peter, of Stephen, of Paul, if you have yet to walk wholeheartedly, in a life that is zealous for the Lord, that walks in and lives in and ministers in, not our zeal for Him, but His zeal. If you've yet to fully accept salvation in Messiah Yeshua, if you're still hung up in the mistakes of the past and allowing that to destroy your relationship with the Lord today, now is the time, now is the hour to allow the Lord to redeem and restore you entirely and fully. We're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised 10 minutes from now. I can tell you right now, the end of days is near. We don't have a lot of time to play around anymore. And the Lord wants to use you. He wants to use you to impact those around you. He wants to use you to be a light of Messiah in this dark world. He wants to use you to speak healing and restoration into others' lives. He wants to use you through the power of His Ruach HaKodesh to change the world. we've got to be willing to give him our all we've got to be willing to tell the enemy to screw off and leave us alone because we are bought by the blood of the lamb and he has no ground and no authority and no rule in our lives and we've got to walk in that faithfully amen father of mercies we worship you we love you and we adore you Father, I thank you that you give us examples like Pinchas and Joshua and Caleb of what it means and what it looks like to have a passion and a zeal for you, to walk in the Lord's zeal. Father, I thank you that you give us examples throughout Scripture of men who were willing to stand up for you, of women who are willing to stand up for you, of people who are willing to lay aside our humanity to focus on the divine reality of your presence in our lives. Father, I pray that you inspire and encourage each one of us in the power of your Ruach HaKodesh to take these examples to heart, to realize that if you could forgive and minister through Paul, you can forgive and minister through us. That if you could forgive and minister through men like Peter, who denied you all the way up to your death, that you can forgive and minister through us. That if you can forgive and minister men like Elijah, who saw might and wonder of your hand flowed through his life, yet when one enemy stood up against him, cowered and hid in fear. Father, you can use us. Raise us up as an army, Lord. Raise us up as the army whose master, whose king, whose leader is Yeshua HaMashiach, the Lion of Judah. Raise us up as an army ready to go to battle for the world around us to see Messiah come forth and touch their hearts and our lives. Raise us up as an army prepared to defend and protect your name before all men. Father, raise us up as an army that will not cower down, that will not hide, that will not be ashamed of who we are in you, but an army who is zealous, for you, who is zealous for your kingdom, who is zealous for your victory in our lives and the lives of every single person we come into contact with. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray and everyone says, Amen.